Since starting this podcast, I've gone down countless internet rabbit holes. Some have sparked ideas for new episodes. Some have led me to immediately delete my browser history. This episode came to be after stumbling on a 2020 article about a young man named Dewan Sims. For anyone listening from Michigan, you'll immediately recognize that name as the little boy who went missing in my hometown of Livonia back in 1994. For anyone not from Southeast Michigan, Livonia is a pasty white suburb about 15 minutes outside of Detroit. Livonia is home to nine former and current professional hockey players, two NFL players, three professional baseball players, including one that my dad was buddies with in high school, and a guy who drummed for Megadeth for two years in the 1980s. Our current claim to fame is actress Judy Greer. She's been in about everything recently, including playing Ant-Man's ex-wife and the mom in Jurassic World. Other than that, Livonia isn't known for much. Six U.S. presidents have visited. We were voted the second biggest speed trap city in America in 2012, and it's the home of a still unsolved disappearance that took place during my junior year of high school. The article brought back memories of my buddies and I slowly driving around Wonderland Mall's parking lot looking for the kid. We didn't get it. It was big news, and I remember hearing about it on all the news channels and radio stations every day. Being 16 or 17 at the time, I didn't probably care like I would now. It was quickly out of sight, out of mind for me. In case you've never heard of the case, or your memory is foggy, here's a quick recap. A woman named Dewana Harris was shopping at the Target store which connected to Wonderland Mall. The Target store is still there, by the way. The mall is not. A short while after entering the store, she panicked and told security that her son was gone. People scattered and searched for him. Security watched camera footage with her, but all she could point out was the two of them entering the store. The security guard with her thought it was interesting because the woman she pointed out had a hat and a coat on, and she didn't. Various eyewitnesses claimed that they didn't see any child with her as she entered the store, and she also failed two lie detector tests. The suspicion was that she'd used the trip to the store as a cover-up for something that already took place involving the boy. Nearly 27 years later, no one has ever been arrested, and four-year-old Dewan Sims has never been found. The case pops up in the news once in a while. In 2019, a young man matching what would be his current age and description came forward and submitted DNA. Either they're still awaiting test results, or it was another false lead and the story was buried. The article I ran across, the one that planted the seed for this episode, was reporting that Dewana Harris, now Wiggins, had passed away in North Carolina on December 10th, 2020, the day before the anniversary of Dewan's disappearance. Now I watch enough Dateline and Investigation Discovery to know what probably occurred, but with the passing of the mother, it's much more likely that we may never really know what happened to him. He's just gone, vanished, erased, poof. As I repeat in nearly every episode, I try to make this podcast friendly for all ages. So I couldn't just do an episode about sad, scary, missing persons cases. There are hundreds of podcasts for that. So I thought instead, we would take a look at three separate cases where successful, talented people just up and vanished one day. Episode 10, Into Thin Air. If you're into mysteries like this, I've been watching a great documentary on Amelia Earhart on Disney+. Plus. You should check it out. We could certainly talk about her or D.B. Cooper, Jimmy Hoffa, Errol Flynn's son, Sean, 
Glenn Miller, or Michael Rockefeller, who was likely eaten by a tribe in Papua New Guinea. I wanted to, however, take a look at three lesser-known cases involving three names that may not be as familiar to most people. Jim Sullivan, John Brisker, and Barbara Newhall Follett. Ladies first. Part 1. Barbara Newhall Follett was born on March 4, 1914, to Wilson and Helen Follett. Barbara fell in love with words at a very young age. She was homeschooled by her mother, who believed that children should learn at their own pace and live life. Her father taught her how to use a typewriter at age four. She started off by writing letters to relatives and friends and soon jumped into short stories, essays, and poems with nature as the central theme. By the age of six, she wrote a 4,500-word piece entitled The Life of the Spinning Wheel, The Rocking Horse, and The Rabbit. At eight years old, Barbara created her own make-believe world that she named Farksolia. This wasn't your typical make-believe place. Along with the world, she developed an entire language and vocabulary called Farksu. At the age of nine, she finished her first novel-length story, entitled The House Without Windows and Ypresip's Life There. The manuscript was unfortunately taken by a fire that ravaged her home. She rewrote the book by memory, and with her father's help, the book was published in 1927. She was 13. Does anybody want to guess what I was doing at 13? Probably not. The first edition sold out everywhere and was critically acclaimed. Barbara was hailed as a child prodigy. She followed up The House Without Windows with a novel entitled The Voyage of the Norman D. The book was based on the time she spent aboard a coastal schooner in Nova Scotia. Her second book received the same favorable reviews and all signs pointed to her becoming an author for the ages. She was 14. Nearing the end of 1928, it was learned that her father was leaving for another woman. Wanting to get away from it all, she talked her mother into setting off on an adventure. All they brought along was a suitcase and a pair of typewriters. The two explored the Caribbeans, Tahiti, Fiji, the Tonga Islands, and Samoa. All the while writing about their experience, the book Magic Portholes would eventually be finished and released by her mother in 1932. At 15 years old, her mother left for Honolulu to work on Magic Portholes leaving Barbara with a family friend in California. She was enrolled in a junior college, but hated it, and shortly after ran away to San Francisco. Three days later, she was found by police in a small hotel under an assumed name and attempted to jump out of her hotel window to get away, a fall that may have killed her. No one knows if that was the plan or not. By the time she turned 16, America was headed into the Great Depression. Barbara and her mother boarded another boat and sailed back to the East Coast. Sometime later, the pair moved to New York and Barbara took on a job as a secretary. In 1931, at the age of 17, she began work on her third novel, Lost Island. Her mother rented a log cabin in Vermont, where Barbara spent time with her mother and sister, who I'm pretty sure grew up with another family, and eventually met a recent college graduate named Nickerson Rogers. The two became fast friends and eventually more as they hiked through the mountains of Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, ending up in Massachusetts. The pair then left for Spain, and then traveled mostly by foot through France, Switzerland, and ending up in Germany, where they met up with Barbara's mother and sister. Eventually, everyone ended up back in the States, and Barbara moved to Boston to be closer to Nick. They were married in 1934. It was around this time that Barbara also reconciled with her father, who was now married with a two-year-old daughter. After just a few short years, it was evident that the marriage was not going so well. Barbara had taken up dancing and was traveling across country back to California with a friend where the two would attend dance school. While in California, she received a letter from her husband 
asking for divorce. So she traveled back across the country, this time by bus. She tried to make the marriage work, but by late 1939, her husband had asked her to find her own place. Sometime during the evening of December 7th that year, after an argument with him, she left the apartment with around $30 and a notebook and was never seen again. It took Nick Rogers two weeks to report her missing to the police, and it wouldn't be until four months later, in April of 1940, that he would allow the police to go public. The publicity also wouldn't help much because he used her married name, Barbara Rogers, instead of the name that the world knew her by. He'd been questioned plenty, but it doesn't appear that he was ever a suspect. Police could find no evidence of foul play. All over the internet, there are people who believe he killed her. There are also people who think she just began her next adventure, changed her name, and vanished. While some, more closer to the situation, believe it's possible that she took a train to an area she loved and then took her own life. One of those people is her half-nephew, Stephen Cook. Cook runs a truly wonderful website named after her made-up world, Farksolia.org. Her father was his grandfather. Cook compiled, edited, and published a collection of Barbara's correspondence entitled Barbara Newhall Follett, A Life in Letters. That came out in 2015. He then went on to publish Lost Island in 2020 and included three short stories also written by his half-aunt. He maintains and updates the website regularly. Check it out. She was only 25 years old when she disappeared. Who knows what she could have offered this world over the course of the next 25 or 50 years. It seems to me that she loved her family too much to just adopt a new life without telling any of them. I'm also skeptical about her taking her own life, but I do know in my short time studying the amazing Barbara Newhall Follett, two men, on separate occasions, completely knocked her off course. Part 2 John Brisker was born on June 15, 1947, in Detroit, Michigan. Growing up, Brisker showed potential in boxing, football, and basketball. He was a tough kid. Growing up in the Detroit area in the 1950s and 60s, he had to be tough. There was no other option. He attended Hamtramck High School with his older brother Ralph, as well as Rudy Tomjanovich, who went on to be a player and a coach in the NBA. He also formed a friendship with fellow Detroiter and future Hall of Famer Spencer Haywood. Brisker was a star for Hamtramck, and while his teammates loved him, opposing players feared him. In one interview with Tom Janovich, he recalls Brisker turning around and punching a player from the rival team in the face just two minutes into the game. From Hamtramck High School, he went on to play college basketball for the University of Toledo, just an hour south. While at Toledo, Brisker played the tuba in the marching band, played one year of wide receiver for the football team, and averaged 14 points a game and 8 rebounds over 55 games and two and a half seasons with the Rockets. He even helped in leading the Toledo Rockets to one of only four appearances in the NCAA tournament. While his basketball skills improved, his grades and attitudes suffered. He became frustrated with the school's racial issues, noticing that many of the white students wanted nothing to do with a black student from Detroit. The racism and segregation bothered Brisker, and in his senior year, he walked off the team after only six games and left the school. From there, Brisker joined his friend Spencer Haywood and headed to the short-lived American Basketball Association. Haywood played in Denver, and John Brisker headed to Pittsburgh. The ABA began in 1967 and was presented as a more wide-open, fun league that brought basketball to parts of the country where the NBA hadn't been yet. They had 30-second shot clocks instead of 24 and a three-point line, something the NBA didn't have yet. It was also known to be a little, hmm, how should I say this, rough around the edges? During his time with the team in Pittsburgh, Brisker acquired the name the heavyweight champion of the ABA. 
On more than one occasion, teammates remember Brisker threatening to get his gun from his duffel bag and at least once actually bringing the gun onto the court. Opposing owners used Brisker as a marketing tool and would sometimes put a bounty on his head for any player that could knock him out. At 6'5", 220 pounds, Brisker was a thick, muscular machine that could knock you out while also shooting the lights out. He averaged around 26 points per game and made the All-Star game twice in his short ABA stint. He once scored 50 points on back-to-back -back nights. He had real talent. ABA players that played with him and against him often now compare him to LeBron James. Side note, the ABA continued on until it merged with the NBA in 1976, bringing with it four teams and the three-point line. The short-lived league also produced talent like Dr. J, Rick Barry, George the Iceman Gervin, Moses Malone, and many more. Brisker loved kids, he donated to charities, and was a funny guy to have around in the locker room, until he wasn't. In 1972, Brisker joined the NBA and reunited with his Detroit buddy Spencer Haywood on the Seattle Supersonics. He also quickly carved out his bad boy reputation by punching a rookie in the mouth. To be fair, the rookie hit Brisker first. Brisker knocked out four of the kids' teeth. In his second year with the team, the Supersonics hired NBA legend and Hall of Famer Bill Russell to be their coach and general manager. Brisker and Russell never got along, and Russell moved the budding star and highly paid player to the end of the bench. After the third season, he was cut from the team. Because of Brisker's reputation and his high-priced contract, no other teams wanted to take the chance. By 1975, he was out of basketball and trying to find new avenues to explore in the business world. He invested much of his NBA salary into various failed businesses. By 1978, John Brisker had two beautiful daughters by two different women. By all accounts, he was a great father who loved his girls. He had also become very interested in Africa and studying his roots. Sometime in that year, he told his current wife that he was heading to Africa to try and start up an import-export business, and that's where things got weird and the rumors swirled. His wife got a phone call from John in Liberia and then one more from Uganda, and then that was it. One rumor has him being one of the 918 people to have perished in Guyana's Jonestown Massacre on November 18th of that year. Another and more prominent rumor describes him traveling to Uganda after being invited by the dictator president Idi Amin to be one of his mercenaries. Amin was overthrown and exiled in 1979. Those same people believe that Brisker died in that battle. The U.S. State Department can't confirm that he even entered the country. In 1985, his family had him declared legally dead. It's been over 40 years since Brisker vanished. If any of the Idi Amin stories are true, and they could be, it's eerily similar to how another basketball bad boy, Dennis Rodman, sparked a friendship with the current supreme leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Before his passing, Brisker's college coach, Bob Nichols, told friends that John had taken up an assumed name and moved back to Detroit. His family is pretty hush-hush about everything, leading his daughters to believe there could be more to the story. Was he killed in Africa? Did he even go to Africa? Did he take up a new identity to avoid legal issues in the United States? All signs point to us never knowing. Part 3 Jim Sullivan was born August 13, 1940. His parents, Irish immigrants, raised him and his six brothers in San Diego, California, after moving away from their Dust Bowl-stricken Nebraska home. In high school, Sullivan, who was a large, athletic man, started as quarterback for his team and quickly found a love for music. He was heavily inspired by blues music, as well as the folk music that poured out of the Great Depression and Dust Bowl era. Eventually, he married the homecoming queen from his high school, co-owned a short-lived bar with his friend, 
and played in a popular San Diego group called the Survivors. He and his wife Barbara had a son named Chris, and in 1968, they moved to Los Angeles. Barbara secured a job at the famous Capitol Records, while Sullivan wrote music and played in clubs at night. His favorite place to play was at a place in Malibu called The Raft. Every night, the bar was filled with celebrities like Farrah Fawcett, Lee Marvin, and Lee Majors. His friendship circle quickly grew in size and standing. Around the same time, he appeared as an extra in the movie Easy Rider, as well as playing on a few popular television variety shows from the 60s. By 1969, Sullivan, who went by Sully, had a group of friends willing to take a chance on the singer-songwriter and put up money for him to head into the recording studio. One friend even created a record label for him to help market and produce his first album. They also secured the world-famous Wrecking Crew, which was a group of talented studio musicians, to be his backing band in the recording. These guys were musicians that played on hundreds of top 40 hits for artists like Sonny and Cher, the Mamas and the Papas, Nancy Sinatra, the Beach Boys, and the Monkees. People believed in Jim Sullivan and his style, which blended folk, rock, and country. I have to be honest and tell you that I was skeptical going into listening to the 1969 release entitled UFO. I worked in classic rock radio for years, and while I didn't live through the eras involved, I was raised on it and learned as much as I could possibly learn in my time playing it. I'd never heard one mention of Jim Sullivan. I assumed him to be a mediocre talent who just never made it big. After no less than 20 complete front-to-back listens, I was wrong. I'm hooked. I've admitted before that folk and country are not my thing. I grew to appreciate it a bit more after working on the Dust Bowl concept episode. Still, I wanted to give the album a chance to try and get a better understanding of the man. I struggled to even find a good way to describe his sound. His storytelling is folksy. Sometimes his voice reveals a hint of country, but his guitar playing is phenomenal, and the backing sounds on the album are full Phil Spector wall of sound. There's horns and flutes, drums and organs, that at times give off a Doors vibe. A string section even starts off the title track for UFO. Every song is a story about highways, women, deserts, and aliens. It's 10 tracks and a disappointingly short 29 minutes. I wish it was double that. It's one of the most unique sounding albums I've ever heard, and perhaps that's why it didn't get the reception it deserved. The album produced one single, Rosie, that didn't do much on radio. In 1972, Sullivan went back into the studio and recorded his self-titled follow-up album. He was asked to join Hugh Hefner's new Playboy record label, a move that probably didn't help his cause because record stores were unsure of what to do with an album from Playboy Records. Despite having the Hugh Hefner promotional team behind him, his second album did not sell well either. The next couple of years were tough on Sullivan and his family, and in 1975 the couple decided to split. Sullivan informed his wife that he was going to find work in Nashville, and as soon as he could, he'd send for them to join him. On March 4th, he loaded up his Volkswagen Beetle and left California for Nashville. It would be the last time his family would ever see him. The following day, March 5th, Barbara got a phone call from her husband stating that everything was all right and that he'd call once he arrived. That same day, he got pulled over on suspicion of drunk driving. He passed a sobriety test and checked himself into a hotel in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Reports state that he never actually slept in the room. Hotel workers found the room clean and the key was left on the table. So now we're to March 6th. Jim Sullivan is spotted at a family ranch in New Mexico, well away from the nearest highway. The owner stepped outside and asked Sullivan if he needed help. He declined and began walking away from the vehicle. On March 8th, his Volkswagen was towed away. Inside were his ID, cash, clothes, 
his cherished 12-string guitar, and a couple crates of his own albums. A police investigation that some found to be not very thorough turned up nothing. Two of his brothers drove to his last known location and conducted their own investigation, also with no luck. A short while later, a body was discovered buried in the desert that matched Sullivan's description, but it was not him. Rumors began circulating involving the mafia, the police, and even aliens, which due to his first album being called UFO, caught on. He just vanished into the desert, never to be seen again. In more recent years, Sullivan's material has earned a cult following, especially after its reissue by Light in the Attic Records. They've also released an album of previously unheard demos from Sullivan, entitled If the Evening Were Dawn. The record label even launched its own investigation to try to come up with more information. Unfortunately, not much came of it. If you're a fan of music and storytelling, I strongly urge you to at least spend 29 minutes with his debut album. It's available for purchase at Light in the Attic's website, as well as iTunes. Side note, if you read his bio on iTunes, it's about a different musician named Big Jim Sullivan. It's the wrong guy altogether. There's just something to his voice. There's more there. He's telling us something. In the lyrics to his song, So Natural, he discusses being in a funeral and not liking the way the other mourners talked about the deceased. Realizing that when it's his time to go, he just wants his ashes to blow away in the wind until he's out of sight. So we have three separate people, all talented, potential household names, who either by their own choice or possible foul play were removed from the spotlight, gone, without so much as a goodbye to family and friends. One day, I hope their families are able to get the answers that they no doubt seek and deserve. I hope this episode leaves you wanting to check out some of the amazing work by Miss Follett and Mr. Sullivan. They are great people keeping their work and ideas alive. And if you're a sports fan, do yourself a favor and do a little research into the American Basketball Association. There are some wild stories out there. My heart goes out to anyone who has experienced a friend or family member that goes missing, especially when years go by without any answers. Check in on each other. Keep an eye out for one another. Ask if things are okay. And most importantly, until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you.